Welcome to the Coast Talk Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nick Swinmurn, otherwise known as Coast Talk. I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. Whether it's sports, tech, food, fitness, I've got a bunch of passions. I've also been fortunate enough to invest in some of my favorite sports teams. Along the way, I've met a bunch of great people, whether athletes, entrepreneurs, executives, and we hope to dive into their stories on our show. You'll hear backstories, successes, and failures throughout our discussions. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoy listening to the show. This is Coast Talk Talk. Welcome to Coast Talk Talk. Today, I'm joined by Barry Mizell, President and COO of the Migrate Group. Barry, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Nick. Thanks a lot. Awesome. I think um, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a a great story to hear. Um, If you want to start with a quick uh, introduction, background, take it back as far as you want, I think that'd be a great way to kick it off. Sure, sure. Well, Migray uh, is celebrating its 25th anniversary. I was a former sports writer in New York City and a collector of game-worn jerseys who had this idea as a collector in the wild, wild west, the old days of collecting back in the 80s, that there was no organized way of procuring and securing professional game-worn jerseys. And I said, why isn't anybody doing this in an official manner? Because I was a sports writer, I had access to team's ears. And I said, do you know that there are people collecting your dirty laundry? And they laughed and said, what are you talking about? And I explained that there was this niche uh, hobby. And I explained that there was a lot of uh, uncertainty as to authenticity. And my idea was basically, if you licensed a company to organize, authenticate, and sell the jerseys on the open market, you'd have a real revenue stream where right now you have nothing. So A, they said I was crazy. B, I said, well, I'm willing to leave my job as a sports writer to start a company like this if you're willing to sign a contract with me. Then they thought I was really crazy. (laughs) When I told them the kind of dollars I thought this would generate and that I was willing to take the chance, they said, let's let's try it. I had a financial partner, my partner, Bob Gray, and together the two of us, uh, we took the leap of faith. The teams took the leap of faith. And 25 years later, here we are. All right, so what were you what were you first collecting when you first started collecting jerseys? What were, I'm a what hockey were you guy. Collecting? I'm a hockey guy. I love hockey. I was a hockey writer. Um, I've written three hockey books. And so the hockey market was probably a little more mature than the basketball and football markets. I'd say baseball jerseys were also very popular um, yeah. back in the day. So I wanted to expand. I wanted to collect all – I'm a New Yorker. I wanted to collect all New York teams. Uh, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, 60s and 70s when uh, New York did have a couple of championships, you know, the great year of 69, the Knicks of the 70 and 73. So my thought was I'd love to have a memento of those championship seasons. So that's where it started for me. In 1994, when the Rangers finally won the Stanley Cup, it really hit click for me. And that's when I started talking to the teams and this idea started formulating. And how were you getting jerseys uh, at first? The way we all did, you go to the equipment manager at the end of the season and say, uh, hey, I'd like a jersey um, out of your locker room, one that was actually worn. Do you have one? Can I get an old one? And what would it cost me? My first thought as a sports writer was it would be a good idea to have one jersey from every team I covered, kind of like a memento of my sports writing career. And then it grew from there. So it was really, you had to be able to get to the equipment manager. So this was more like, you know, Reporters, journalists, people inside the teams, it was hard for a fan on the outside. 
Like, how would a fan on the outside ever get access to a jersey? Yeah, I, I knew that it was happening. I, I would think once in a while you'd see the occasional um, a player would hand something to a kid, or there'd be some charitable event. But nobody really saw it as a collectible commodity. It was almost like a unique, hey, that's a pretty good idea to give a, a, a kid a jersey or um, to have a fundraiser. But back in the 70s and 80s, it was just an unheard of kind of occurrence that you'd see once in a while. But there were a bunch of us, not many. You know, this was before the Internet, so you really couldn't buy and sell and trade with other collectors. But people knew of people that would occasionally get something um, out of the locker room. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. When I was a kid, I used to go to Giants and A's games and I'd just take a baseball and go down, you know, an hour before, I mean, a couple hours before, whatever it was, get autographs. And I do remember one time asking, hey, can I get your batting gloves? I think it was Al Cowens. He just threw his batting gloves up and I was like, oh my God, I got batting gloves. I, I should have been thinking, hey, can I get your jersey? That would have been a much uh, <laughs> a much better thing. So so you start collecting, you have this idea. Uh, what what team? What what? Who were you pitching at first? So, so as a sports writer in New York, I had just... Uh, covered the New York Rangers and the New Jersey Devils. And I had moved in 1990 uh, to cover the New York football giants. In New York, the football and baseball are the um, most popular sports. And moving up the ladder, as most people would want to do in their careers, I was then covering football. So I pitched those three teams. And I had meetings with each of them. Each of them had the same reaction, intrigued, fascinated, and they all did the same thing at these initial meetings. They looked around and said to each other, what do we do with our jerseys? And that's when <laughs> equipment managers who were in these meetings started crawling under the tables. Because they realized that this was material that nobody was ever checking on where it was going after the fact. The equipment managers knew they had value because in these uh, prehistoric days, we were seeing that there was some value, but it was not organized. And once... I started having these meetings. I, I, I got basically the same reaction. Let's go back and talk about this. So I'd wait for the teams. And then whether it was a week or a month, or in the case of the Devils, the New Jersey Devils didn't call me back for six months. But then when they called me back in six months, they had done all their due diligence. They had chronicled 20 years of jerseys that were in their archives, in their attics, in their who knows where. And they said, Barry, we're ready to deal. And nice. I signed multi-year contracts with each of the three franchises. That's awesome. So now you've got jerseys. Um, I guess you've got some from the past and you've got a deal to get more moving forward. Right. How do you now, what was, were you um, going the traditional route of, you know, existing collectors shows or was it, was it, you know, there wasn't a direct to consumer model at that, at that point. It's, it's a great question, Nick. And here's where, you know, I credit myself with having a good idea, but my timing, I couldn't have been luckier. I came around the idea fomented, fomented, in 96, we, we uh, in- introduced our company in the summer of 97, and it's just when the internet started to really become popular. So two things happened. Um, one story that made me really doubt uh, my idea, and then the second story that where I knew it was going to be a hit. So we came up, we, we, uh, we obviously uh, introduced a website. We put ads in the popular magazines of the day. Um, Sports Collectors Digest and Beckett Hockey Magazine was just starting around then. But there was an East Coast National in the New York City area. And our first introduction to the hobby was I brought all, all these jerseys of the three teams 
to the East Coast National in White Plains, New York. Spent four days, set up, beautiful setup, all these jerseys. Nobody had ever seen something like this. Four days, I sold three jerseys. I was petrified. I was <laughs> panicked. I said, I can't understand. Why is this not working? I did very little conversation, handed out a lot of business cards. Uh, most people didn't want to talk. They looked, they examined, and they walked away. I already had, we, we set up a small office. We had a toll-free number. The Monday after the show, I was on the phone constantly. What was happening was people were so shocked that this existed that they doubted the, the, the they doubted that it was, it was almost too good to be true. They did their due diligence. The Rangers and Giants told me um, that they had gotten dozens of calls that Monday morning. Hey, do you know a company named Migray? They claim to have your people were doing their due diligence because they couldn't believe that suddenly after all these years of having to pay someone off or uh, find someone, they could buy these straight from consumer. So that's what happened in that first um, couple of weeks. And then going online, word start to, started to spread. And the East Coast National was a collector, right? The collector's convention, probably uh, primarily sports cards, but you kind of showed up with memorabilia? Or was yeah, the- yeah. And th- that, that show generally had um, cards and memorabilia, probably 80, 20. The memorabilia was mostly autographed baseballs and the, the things you were referring to it that you got as a kid. Bats yeah. would come out. You know, players would give bats away from time to time. But, yeah, we had a whole display of mannequins and jerseys and photos, the photo matches of the players wearing them. And people were just shocked to see something they'd never seen before. And what were the prices like at the time? Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, probably pennies on a dollar to what they are now. You know, I, I think – uh, a jersey that now, you know, Mark Messier, a game-worn jersey of the Rangers can sell now for $25,000, $35,000. I think I was selling Messier's for $2,500. Brian Leach, a Hall of Famer, one of the best Rangers at the time. I think that was one of the three I sold. I think I sold it for two grand. So there were, there were serious prices. And the common yeah. players, two, three, four hundred bucks. Yeah. It's such a crazy thing because there's very few things where, I mean, the same reaction you got when you – talk to the teams there's very few things that are like so visible that 99.9 percent of people have never thought about what happens to them right like even when you ask um if you were to go ask people probably today what do you think happens to like jerseys after the game most people would be like uh they wear it the next game or oh the players take them all home you know they think the players have like you know 500 jerseys in their, right, in their, exactly. in their closet so what was the what was kind of the the groundswell, like what happened from, you know, you got this first show, people validate you, you got this call. Was it slow and steady for a while of like, okay, I've got these three teams and I'm going to continue to focus on those. Or were you immediately trying to expand? And the groundswell was we, we did, we did our thing making team deals for about three years. We went from those three teams. We signed the Dallas stars and the Phoenix coyotes, two more hockey teams. And then the real ignition happened in late 2000, early 2001. The NHL came to us because they were in the middle of a collective bargaining squabble with the Players Association, with a a CBA up, and they said, um, we see you've got to deal with a couple of teams. The players have seen this. They're claiming the jerseys should be their property. Mm. We're going to do our due diligence and go through arbitration if we win the arbitration and it's proven that, as we believe, that the jerseys are property of the teams because there are 
equipment, would you be interested in um, creating a, uh, a league-wide program to organize this? So they had the vision to turn this into let's work with all the teams. I yeah. said, of course, uh, I gave them a template. I actually was one of the um, witnesses who testified at the arbitration talking about, you know, there were, there were nuances to how I was handling the business and what was going on. The arbitrator ruled decisively in favor of the league that the players own the rights to their likeness and their autograph, but the, the teams own the rights to the garments worn on the ice for the purposes of playing the game. Hmm. And I signed a, a four-year deal with the NHL to do a league-wide program. That's where it really took off. That was 2002 by the time the new CBA was written and they and the league settled with the players. And what would have happened if the players had won? Would you have, I guess then the opportunity would have been to do I, something. I probably would have made a deal with the Players Association and said, let's do the same thing. Because, you know, no player wants to be hawking his own jersey. That would have been a little ridiculous. So that was my fallback. But it was clear to me that from reading what I read prior to going forward with the NHL, that the teams own the rights to the garments. I always just kind of assumed, yeah, I just kind of assumed you paid the team and then the team, if they had some split with the Players Association, they would kind of figure that. It is a funny thing because I even remember, I've been collecting jerseys through you since 2010, I think. And I remember mentioning to a friend of a player once something about the jerseys. Or I think I had something. I had. I think I had something from like an all-star game or something. And I was like, hey, this is the thing. I got this thing and he was like, wait, what? what is this? And I remember him just, this is a friend, it wasn't the player, but he was just like, hold on, where's the website? And I showed him and he's like, he was just like, head was, head was blown. I mean, mine was blown. You know, he was just like, this is insane. I think he want, you know, he was looking at like getting stuff for himself, but he's like, no, the players don't know about, <laughs> the players don't know about this, but they do, they did, they did know about it. But it was, um, it's always one of those, uh, to me, it's always been this, even though it's very popular, obviously you've done, it's like still when you compare it to other things, you know, whether it's cards or other things where there's just an infinite supply, it just seems to make so much sense. It's so cool to have like a jersey, you know, it's like. Right. Well, here's the interesting thing. Um, a player, any given player probably would not know about this, but the Players Association definitely does. And let me tell you why. And I, I've had many of these conversations with players. They'll see me get a jersey or they'll see me outside a locker room doing my authentication. And they'll yeah. say, hey, I don't get, how come I don't get a piece of that? Well, actually they do. Because the, the interesting part, the interesting thing about today's business model for professional sports is the salary cap throws all of the designated revenue into that huge, huge pot from which the, the players and the owners negotiate the split. I think in the NHL, it's 50-50. In the NBA, I think it's 59-41. Whatever the split is, and no different than the hot dogs and the tickets and the broadcasting billions, the game worn jersey money goes right into that pot, which is how at the end of the year we hear that the NBA had $8.9 billion revenue and the salary cap next year will be blah, blah, blah million. So I say to the players, you are getting $0.59 cents or whatever the split is out of every dollar because this, this revenue stream is no different than ticket sales and broadcast sales. It's another piece of this mega business that is professional sports where the money goes into the pot and the players get their negotiated uh, cut. When you were getting started compared to now, like, did you see sports becoming this big of an industry with so much opportunity in so many different areas? 
Well, my my dad was a huge sports fan, and I became really into sports from the age of six, seven, eight years old. And by the time I was a teenager and fell in love with all sports and decided I loved sports, I happened to like writing, so hey, why don't I become a sports writer? Uh, I saw sports starting to grow. Did any of us ever dream it would become this big? I don't think so. I mean, I remember the 1970s when Major League Baseball started with free agency and Steinbrenner started signing all these free agents. Everybody said, oh, this could be end of professional sports as we know it. And of course it wasn't. In the 80s and 90s when stadiums, the mega stadiums started being built and sports really took another huge turn. People uh, were saying, oh, this will never be supported. Uh, people aren't going to pay those kinds of do- the kind of money to go to games. Obviously they are. Sports is just a way of life in our culture. Um, it is a mammoth business, but you know I'm a big believer in the market. The market rules. If people are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars to go to a Super Bowl and the stadiums are filled, that's what's going to happen. So I don't think there's an end in sight. Yeah, it's interesting because it's more like um, you know the 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 dollars associated with everything from the revenue, the valuations, the you know the the price to get in, collectibles, all that stuff keeps going up. And and at first glance, you think like, well, there's so many more choices now. But I think that's actually the actually helps sports, right? Because there's so many choices that are just available anytime. And then you've got sports, which is like happens when it happens. It's live. You don't, you know, there's no way to fast forward it. And so it still kind of captures captures the attention of anyone. It's it's turned out to be this one thing that's almost impossible to replicate. Like you just can't take the history and the excitement of today and make it live. So many eyes on it. It's, it's, it's kind of wild. Well, here's I've said this before. I love to eat. And to me, the perfect food is pizza. You could come up with a thousand recipes from a thousand chefs. You're not going to beat pizza. So sports is sports. I mean, it has everything we want. It has drama. It has the unknown. It has uh, an annual recurrence. It has emotion, it has uh, territorialism, and it has it's and sports are generally exciting. And the average guy, while he can't play at the level that an, a professional player can play, you and I, we can watch LeBron and Curry, and then you and I can take a basketball and go to a playground and shoot hoops. I think that's what makes sports so great is that everybody can enjoy it at different levels, and it has so much of what our culture loves as a yeah. recreation. Yeah, that's interesting. I was looking at my son sometimes and I think like, you know, you spend time worrying like people in the industry worry about like, what if, uh, you know, the younger generation's consuming games in a different way? What if they just want to watch the highlights or what if they don't want to sit there the whole time or what if they want everything digital? But the reality is they're going to just it's it's still going to just be a different way of interacting with the same thing. Right. And so everyone will evolve. And and there's just something about the the history and the continuity of it that. I think, you know, because a lot of times like, why doesn't, why doesn't someone start a new NBA? You know, why don't the players just go start a new NBA? You know, why doesn't, uh, you know, so many people have tried to start a football league, right? And it's right. just, it's a really, uh, it's a really exciting industry that we just thought, you know, when, growing up, you just thought of it as a, as an industry. And, and now as the economy's kind of changed to the individual as the company, sports is still, it's actually helped sports because sports is full of individuals and the individuals have become more valuable, more prominent, more, more influential. And their primary platform is playing in these leagues. So I think it's, um, yeah, so exciting. So, so to go back again, so you, you get this deal with the NHL, are you 
you know, is that a, is that a, uh, a next step that, that feels smooth or is it like, oh, wow, this is a lot more, a lot more to deal with, a lot more to coordinate. It certainly was a lot more to coordinate, but the thing that I always tried to do in, in creating the business and the concept and authentication, we haven't talked a lot about authentication yet. But no. It's important to recognize here. The one thing I focused on that I don't think anybody ever had was that this business can't succeed and shouldn't succeed unless absolute providence, authentication, absolute authenticity existed. I believed and my partner believed that there was a lot of money on the sidelines, people who wanted to collect, but were shrewd enough to know, I can't trust a guy who says he knew a brother of a cousin of an equipment manager, and this is real, so give me a thousand bucks for this jersey. So we had that in mind all the time. Once the NHL gave us the legitimacy to create an authentication program, pre-tagging the jerseys, tracking the provenance, proving the use afterwards, direct um, acquisition from the teams, all of these things that made it easy to prove what was real, I realized it was scalable. So whether I was working with two teams or now an entire NHL, it was scalable. Just a matter of hiring more people, uh, expanding the business. And the next step, of course, was the NBA saw what we were doing with the NHL. And it wasn't very long before I got a call from uh, a representative of the NBA who says, hey, we're, we're watching with interest what you're doing. Do you think this would work for the NBA? And I told them just what I told you. Yes, I did think it would. NBA was easily as popular as the NHL. The collectability was easily there. It was simply a case of was there a legitimate uh, method to get legitimate 100% authentic products into the hands of the collectors. Yeah. And I said, I'll write you a model, a model. I'll write a business plan. You have to go back and see if it's doable with your teams. And on <laughs> Unlike the NHL, where it was really team by team, the NBA took it under their umbrella, acquired the uh, inventory from the teams. In other words, the team sent everything to the NBA. The NBA sent everything to us. That was the business model that the NBA preferred. 2006-7, we started it. And 16 years later, it's more, more stuff, greater numbers, many, many thousands more collectors. And it's, it's a worldwide Hobby yeah. right now for the NBA. The NBA has done a great job with selling their brand to the world, and the game worn jerseys have gone right along with it. And that's the uh, the patch, right? You have a patch with a serial number, and those are I assume those are what as soon as they're issued, they're entered, and as soon as they're worn, it's updated from issued to worn. Correct. And every jersey from the from when they're produced by Nike, every jersey has a unique serial number. That's where it starts. So we track yeah. every serial number, and then we track its usage. And then we confirm its usage. You know, a team could, I could walk out of a locker room with 12 sweaty jerseys. I'm still going back and looking at photos, looking at film and conclusively proving. And this is, our contract says, we yeah. cannot let an item go out unless we've conclusively proved, proven it was worn by the player. That's what the hobby has relied on, my grade. That's, where our, that's our brand. That yeah. people know they're absolutely safe knowing if I say, Clay Thompson wore this jersey on this date in this game. I've proven it. Yeah, that's interesting. So the numbers on there, and then it's up. To, it's up to you to then say this in the update the database to say this is when this jersey was worn on this day. It's not, it doesn't happen automatically. Like they don't they don't like scan the jersey when a player puts it on. And no, because I couldn't scanning a jersey doesn't prove he wore it. Yeah, that's true. 
and we're, we're, we're constantly talking to companies and, you know, if there's a, a day, we may, we may be getting there soon where you could scan a jersey on the court. Yeah. We would do that. Again, it's all about proving, coming up with a concept that proves the player wore it and when. Yeah. It'd be cool if they had those, uh, you know how soccer players wear those um, those sports bra looking things that, that track how much they've run and all that stuff. It'd be cool if the jersey had that built in. And so you got a jersey that said, hey, you know, this, this uh, Curry jersey, we can tell by the RFID and this other thing that he wore this on this court in this city, and he ran like 13 miles during the game. That would it's, be been discussed. Cool. it's been yeah. discussed. I wouldn't be shocked if uh, one day that that's part of this. Yeah, that's great. So how does the, I always kind of wondered, so the photo matching, like how does that work? Like I, mean, I could see in baseball, a guy slides into second base or, you know, football, you know, he gets some of the end zone paint or blood on him. But in a typical basketball game, how do you photo match a clean jersey? Like, how do you know, how do you, how can you tell? You would be surprised. I mean, the, the most common way I describe it to people, and I speak a lot on this, is it's no different than a fingerprint. A fingerprint, if you just look at your finger and you look at the next guy's fingers, you're not going to see the differences. But if you blow up your fingerprint, if you blow up a jersey, if you look at your own shirt, you might see a little imperfection. You might see an uneven uh, thread. When you look at a jersey that is customized with a player's individual name, every letter sewn on, and the jerseys have uh, air knit holes for breathability. There are so many hundreds of markers on every individual garment that make it easy. You just put it on a screen, you blow up the garment, and you could see instantly the difference between the Ellen Lakers on jersey number one, jersey number two, jersey number three. Yeah. When you have the added advantage of you know the date that the jersey was worn because you're working directly with the team, it usually it can proof can come in five to ten minutes per garment. I have a team of authenticators who do nothing more than sit in front of uh, computer screens with NBA images, and we look and co- and confirm authenticity. Yeah, that's interesting. So you so you got the. Um... You got the NHL that led to the NBA. When you started with the NHL and there was the NBA, there was there wasn't as much separation in their popularity as there is today. Correct? Is that like what was it? What did it look like back then? As far as when you looked at the future of both of both leagues, the one difference between the NBA collector and the NHL collector is the NBA is much more star driven league. So there's not as much call for the guys. You know, the players four through twelve on the team. Whereas in hockey, uh, the the goalie and the superstar player is just uh, is is just as popular as the twentieth guy on the roster, maybe the fighter or the defensive defenseman. So we saw that um, in the NBA, we wouldn't have to offer as many players. So in the early years, it was more a case of determining how to best use inventory. Because the key, to, in my opinion, to this being a successful market is the supply-demand ratio. I've had teams come to me and say, why don't you have Stephen Curry wear 80 jerseys a year, uh, one in every game? Well, there's something about the value being held by the, n- the number of garments available. You don't want to flood the market. So while I think the concept is, this is, is the same, the supply-demand ratio is very important, the ratios are different from sport to sport. Yeah. Now, is that something where you you say I only want, let's say, I don't know, I don't know a number. Let's say I only want a dozen Curry jerseys during the season, or do you take more and you say I'm only going to release a dozen, and maybe next year I'll release, you know, another dozen from last season? 
it's more a case of the reality of the sport. I mean, teams, you know, equipment managers are not in the business of supplying game one jersey dealers. They're in the business of winning basketball games. Team yeah. could be on a four-game road trip. You may use the same jersey two or three times because, you know, the reality is wash it, dry it, hang it up again. So it's more a case of what's practical and players' comfort, players' superstition. You know, there are those factors. There are other factors like if a player has a really big game or his mom's at the game, he may give the jersey to his mom. So we have found that there's never been a situation where there's too much product. It just yeah. simply hasn't happened yet. What about cards? When cards have like a cut up game worn or, you know, game issued jersey inside of them. Are you, do you, are you involved with that or is that from the teams to the trading companies? Well, it's very interesting that you mentioned that because there was a scandal in hockey about 15, 20 years ago, where, in, in my opinion, and more than my opinion, I was proving to the card companies that they weren't doing their due diligence to buy properly authenticated game-worn jerseys. Without getting into specifics, there were some uh, uh, criminal penalties issued to, to dealers for, for buying game-issued new jerseys and selling them as game-worn, because who would know if a card company is cutting them up into a million pieces? I brought that to the attention of a bunch of uh, people in the NBA. And what we do as part of our contract, as part of being the NBA's official authenticator, every jersey that goes into a card, just as if we're selling it to a collector, if it's getting cut up and going to Panini, uh, the official uh, card company of the NBA, um, we approve their game-worn, we photomatch them, and then we send them off to Panini and say, these are game-worn, these are ones that are, you know, Good to good to cut up. Do you do you cry a little bit inside when they when they chop the jersey up? I once upon a time that was a big thing, but the truth is, I'm an equal opportunity memorabilia person. I'm not a card guy. I think it's ridiculous that you'd want a 180th of a swatch of a fabric. I don't get that, but I respect the fact that card co- collectors like that. So, <laughs> my take, I'm a my heart is in the authentication and the integrity. If you're going to collect it. I'm going to make sure that what you're getting is a swatch of a jersey that the player wore on an NBA court. What about autographs? I know we've talked about this in the past. Like, you know, you're, the integrity of the jersey, and then the first instinct as a collector or a fan is like, oh, I should get this signed by the player. That would make it more valuable. Um, right. But that's not necessarily true with, with jerseys, correct? Well, I was like you. I was a kid in my early days, a six-year-old, 10-year-old. I would bring a baseball, and I would go hang out two hours before a game and lean over the first row of the seats getting autographs from my favorite baseball players. So I got the autograph bug as a kid. I grew out of that. I think in the sports memorabilia hobby, I've always said the same thing. A majority of game-worn jersey collectors do not want the jersey signed. They want them just as they came off the court. But the minority who do see the added value to my player signing it, the tacit acknowledgement that it's his jerseys, adds intrinsic value to for that fan. My general sentiment is a hobby's supposed to be fun. Do what you want. Um, do I get my jersey signed? Absolutely not. To the guy who gets it signed, if that's going to make him happy and it's going to add to the experience, by all means. Yeah. So do you collect? I mean, personally, do you still collect jerseys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I uh, I have a pretty historic collection of New York Rangers. The New York Rangers are my team. Um, I mean, I don't. I never forget that the after 54 years of not winning the Stanley Cup, when the Rangers won the Cup in '94, it changed people's lives. 
I wrote a book on the Stanley Cup championship because I was covering the Rangers at the time. My New York Ranger collection dates back. I have jerseys from the 1940s, 50s, 60s. That's my heart and soul um, collection is my New York Ranger collection. Nice. The only thing I've personally struggled with is displaying or like accessing them. Like, what do you, how do you do that? Cause I, when I started, I was, I didn't realize I was going to collect a bunch and I, and I didn't even think about it and I framed them. And then all of a sudden you realize, how is that staying in there? You know, and then you rip them apart at one point, you realize, oh, there's double-sided tape that might've got on there or something. And then I would hang them. And then eventually it's like, it's hard when you have a lot. Like, how do you, what would you recommend to people the best way to interact with your collection? Well, I'm not embarrassed to say that, uh, I thank God I have a family that's very understanding. Um, it's been my life. Um, my living room is a museum. I have cabinetry with, um, mannequins and I keep about 20 to 30 of my best jerseys in display cases on, uh, on mannequins. And I rotate them out from time to time. Nice. How many people, as you, as new people discover the site and the jerseys, what percentage are new people coming in and, and, and getting started? And what percentage are just repeat collectors, you know, who well, are just like gotten the bug? Yeah. Well, I've collected my whole life. I collected coins. My grandfather had me collecting coins when I was four and stamps. So it's my belief. Collectors never stop. You know, I've never heard of a collector who says, I have everything I want. I'm finished. Collectors collect. So I think the people in the hobby stay in the hobby. Uh, but we, we're getting new collectors every day. You alluded to earlier the fact that um, people still don't know that you can buy a Game One jersey. And we, we uh, introduce new people to this great hobby every day. So I think the hobby is absolutely growing. And the competition for jerseys, which is one of the many reasons the values are going up, more people, the supply-demand ratio I referenced earlier is, is growing. Uh, and people see, and I'm proud to say in part because there's the consumer confidence that they are getting the real thing, that there's a, a fun to another layer of this crazy fascination with sports that we all have. So yeah. um, there's both. There's the new guy and there's the old guy getting more and more enthused that there's more and more to collect. What about um, you know collector versus investor? Like a collector, obviously, you go with your heart, you go with your gut. Um, and you've got an investment side of things. And, and so, you know, that, that makes it kind of simple. Like I want to focus on this team or these players or, or this sport. What advice would you give? Um, you know, cause we've seen in other industries, whether it's sports cards, even NFTs and stuff, right? 99% of the people, they misuse the term collector and really they're just see themselves as investors. What advice would you give investors getting into jerseys as like, What's the, what's the, what's the right play? Is it, a, is it, you know, less things, but the, the more, you know, secure player? Or yeah, is I'm just going to say quality over quantity. Okay. Quality over, it would be, um, and you're right. We have seen in the last couple of years, uh, investor money coming into the hobby. I think um, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm not a financial advisor by any means, but there's no doubt that if you look at the history of sports collectibles, whether the baseball cards and the phenomenal sums of money um, that some great cards have gone. It's the quality cards, the romantic, rare cards. So it's quality over quantity. It would be my suggestion. Get the top player, get get a better performance, get a more historic event for a jersey worn by a better player. And is that, so obviously like, you know, NBA finals um, is more valuable, I would imagine, than, you know, 
12th game of the regular season. What else? What other things are people looking at? Like, should it be, you know, is it make a big difference if someone scored 30 points in 40 minutes instead of a day where they only played 15 minutes and, and left Absolutely. early? Performance. Um, the other thing that, that really matters in, in the hobby, and this was interesting to me in basketball, is the style of jersey. You know, the, the NBA, we've seen them going with the new styles. Collectors really like the newness of the city edition. There's a new city edition. Um, so I'd say also the rarer editions, because by just do the math, there's going to be fewer of those jerseys that Stephen Curry will ever wear. So that is part of it. But number one would be the historic nature of the event. As you said, NBA Finals over 12th game of the season. The player, his performance, and the style of jersey. Yeah. What about... um. What about the resale market? Is there, um, do most people, do you, do you see they hold these? Is it a vibrant resale market? Do you offer a, a way for, you know, people to, to resell and, and list stuff? Yeah, all um, the time. Yeah. yeah. On, on NBAGameWarn.com, one of the, the advantages our relationship with the NBA provides us and provides collectors is, yes, we can post jerseys if people want to resell. And the, the secondary market is critical to any successful hobby. Because collectors aside, and we've talked about that a lot, people want to know that their that their stuff is holding value. Yeah. So the typical process is jersey worn by a player, secured by you, authenticated by you, then uh, for NBA jerseys, then posted for sale on the weekly auctions, and then sold at, sold at retail or auction at NBA auctions. Okay. And then those anything maybe the goes unsold or isn't listed at auction or anything being resold is then taken to the uh, NBA game worn marketplace. Correct. Yeah. It's pretty cool. What about other sports? Do you, uh, do you baseball, football? Well, we've worked with some football teams. We have found that the football market, not as lucrative, not as organized, 53 football players on a team, mm-hmm. very few marketable players, uh, just not as, mature market the quarterbacks the top running backs the superstars do go very well the nfl does a great job of marketing those via nfl auctions for charity so uh, the team deals have just not worked as well Um, and and those jerseys stay local a lot of times baseball mlb authenticated does everything itself through its website through its teams and Mm -hmm. most teams now have team stores right in the stadiums and sell uh that way what about soccer? I mean, you got a worldwide audience. You've got, um, you know, so many different leagues and and clubs and the ability to go direct. And have you have you been approached by soccer teams or looked into soccer at all? We've talked about it, but I'm a big believer in don't bite off more than you can chew. I'm I'm very comfortable with being the leader in the basketball and hockey markets with most of the top soccer teams overseas. It would it would cause a growth that. I don't think would be good for our company right now. And no. I'm a big believer sometimes in staying in your lane and becoming an expert in what you do. But would I exclude the fact that it could happen five, 10 years down the line? It might, but it's not, it's not a today. Yeah. And what about speaking of tomorrow? What about digital? Are you, is it something, um, you know, you're, is, you know, do you see, I don't know, is there some form of digital merchandise? Is there some form of attaching physical to digital? What do you, I'm sure I'm you're looking at it. I'm watching. I'm watching it with interest. I mean, the NFT craze, the the up and down recent roller coaster. Um, I watched closely. I happen to be a big believer in the fact that one of the reasons game worn jerseys and this niche market has worked 
is people want a tangible memory. They want to hang on their, whether it's framing or mannequin, they want a, a tangible piece of the game. Digital is probably another generation. Maybe 25 years, people will look at us and say, he wanted that jersey in his, in his living room? That's crazy. You don't, All you need is a digital replica of it. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah. And getting completely random, what about, you know, like in the NBA, there's so much tension out of what these guys are wearing from the parking lot into the arena. <laughs> are we going to have, you know, like game walk or, you know, night walked like <laughs> fashion outfits? Is that... Nick, you got to do business this time. You can, you, here's a complimentary business. We'll have people in the parking lots uh, authenticating the suits and the. Uh, I don't think we're there yet, but that's that's an interesting concept, and those are the kind of ideas that create businesses. Yeah, we do it full circle, and the players would have nothing. I mean, they they walk in with their outfit that's taken away to be authenticated. Their their uniforms taken away to get authenticated. Then we just start a. A sweats company, I guess. And then they walk, then they walk out. And those. That would be a, that would be interesting. No, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I guess kind of to wrap it up, is there any um, what's got you most excited about the, you know, the future? I mean, you've seen so much growth. Um, you've seen, you know, I'm sure been in so many interesting situations, so many interesting conversations. What are you most excited for about the next uh, the next few years? Well, as you alluded to earlier. I don't think we're scratching the surface, but we're scratching the level below the surface. I think there's still much more room for growth as people understand the availability of this genre. So that's what's got me excited. Uh, We added the Charlotte Hornets and Los Angeles Lakers to our team deals this year in addition to our league deal. And I think more and more teams, more and more collectors, more and more exposure to this great hobby of ours will just make it bigger and bigger and bigger in the years to come. That's what keeps me excited. Nice. What What is the difference between a team deal and a league deal? Like, if you yeah. have a league deal, why do you need a team deal? Okay, great, great question, and um, it is a good time to discuss that. So, the league deal provides a limited amount of material from all thirty teams. But several years ago, as the hobby grew, the leagues, the league blessed me and said, "Well, we'd like you to go to the teams and give them the opportunity to capitalize even more where the supply demand ratio demands." So we'll go to the team and say, okay, we know you have to send the NBA this many jerseys, but let's go beyond that and open up the business so that you can offer uh, product direct to your fans or however you want to market. So it's just really a case of reflecting the supply-demand ratio that if we got four Stephon Currys from the NBA deal, we can get another dozen from the Golden State Warriors deal because there are that many collectors that want a jersey for Stephon Curry. I know I keep saying last question, but you keep giving me more questions. What about, um, is it just jerseys? I mean, what are, are there other uh, we, shoes? Or? Basketballs. I, yeah. I think game use basketballs. Over the years, I've heard that the players really like the, the well-used balls. But we're starting to discuss, wouldn't this be a good idea? There's only one basketball used in every game. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a population of 41 basketballs from the 41 home games and sell one every game? We've been talking about that. Shorts are very popular. The problem with shorts is they're not, um, other than the player's number written inside, it's not been a really sexy collectible yet, but some collectors ask us for the full uniform. So we've talked about shorts. The nets, even though the nets, every net is generic and looks the same, 
We do auction off the nets from the NBA Finals, for example, from the NBA All-Star Game. Again, that's simply, and I'll be the first to, to say I respect the fact that people trust. I could show you 100 nets and they all look the same. <laughs> You're not going to see a difference between the net that was used in Game 6 of the Finals last year when the Warriors won in Boston and the first preseason game in Atlanta. It's the same product. Yeah. But we authenticate it properly and chain of custody is proper. And so uh, there are more and more items coming off the court that we talk about. Yeah. And what about um, like, you know, legendary performances? Like what's the process like? Like Curry goes out, he scores 80 points. You, you want that Jersey, you know, is it, are you sitting there just kind of nervously hoping, let's hope he doesn't take it home with him. Let's hope, uh, you know, another player from the other team doesn't, from the other team doesn't walk in the locker room asked to do a Jersey swap. Like well, thankfully, thankfully now the, the the progression of the hobby it's a little bit more than that um, because the team already knows by the third quarter. I'm sure the equipment manager is saying, "Oh wow, Migre is going to want this jersey." There's a collector who's going to want it, so there is a process, and every team is different. They're respectful of the player, they're respectful of the basketball Hall of Fame because some items um, you'd think would belong in the Hall of Fame. So there's a process with process where there's usually a conversation afterwards. Decisions are made case by case. In a case, I'll give you a really good quick story. In a case where a record is apparent, Stephen Curry became the all-time leading three-point scorer last season at the game at the Garden. He was one shy going into the game. Everyone knew he was going to break the record that night. Everyone knew that Jersey was going to be historic and worth a fortune. A discussion was had before the game, and to Steph's credit, he agreed to uh, changed jerseys at halftime. He kept the jersey in which he broke the record, and the jersey he wore in the second half, where they had the great postgame ceremony, was provided to the program to sell to a lucky collector. Oh, wow. that's pretty awesome. The um, yeah, that's awesome. I think I think the fun part about this is is just that, right? It's something you know, in a world we're worried about digital, or worried about you know things where there's you know millions of them. It's this, it's still the, just the nostalgia and the historic, and you can actually, you know, as a fan connect with something that was, that was there, you know, that was right. there in that moment. There's only one of them. So that's, right. um, that's, that's really the, that yeah. the hook of this hobby. Yeah. I can tell you how many times we've sold a Jersey to a father who's taken his child to his or her first game. That, may, that means nothing to you and I, but a, a memory coming right off the court from the day uh, a, a father and mother took a six-year-old to a game, and that's priceless. And then that's something that remains forever. And that's the beauty of this whole hobby. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the difference, at least for me, is like the sports cards. The sports cards, there's, it's fun to collect. Um, it's fun to speculate. It's fun to be right. It's fun, you know, it sucks to be wrong on on players. And it's it's still fun to collect the historical ones, knowing, hey, there's only this many. And, and it still brings back memories. But uh, I think jerseys are just so under undervalued and underappreciated and this like you know you could be watching a game on tv watching a watching an old game on nba tv and be like wow that you know that that jersey is right there you know right. that's uh exactly that's pretty exciting so no i've definitely got the bug um i think hopefully you know i think there's probably people listening um that are definitely interested where can they go to learn more get started start bidding start start building their own collection yep. nbagameworn.com uh, auctions.nba.com and the company website where you can get all the information on all the programs, migrade.com. Amazon Mary, E I 
G-R-A-Y.com. Awesome. Well, Barry, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, really enjoyed this. Um, and yeah, I'm going to, uh, unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, this is just going to make me, make me, make me want to get more jerseys. Um, but I, uh, yeah, definitely it was a, was a, uh, really interesting space and it was awesome to talk to you and hear about, you know, you've kind of been the one, the one building it. So it's must be, uh, must be really exciting. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Really enjoyed it. I appreciate the time and, uh, happy collecting. Awesome. Well, anyone listening, if you get a chance, rate, review, subscribe, share this episode. I think it'll be really interesting to a lot of people and we'll see you next time.